Welcome to Teach the Word. Thanks for joining today. Hello. Um, this week, I'm going to do a video kind of on, on philosophy. Um, I say kind of on philosophy because I'm not a philosopher. I'm not really a Bible scholar either. I'm actually just a layperson and I'm doing Bible uh, teaching on YouTube. So trying to stick with things the Bible's saying and try to bring out verses about them, help help uh, anyone who might be interested understand why certain, the church may hold certain positions and, and have um, disagreements even uh, about certain positions and why there's different understandings and, and the scriptures from which different positions might arise. But um, I tried to set a stage a few videos back. Um, Kind of on authority, why, what the Bible is, you know, what books make it up, why is it considered authoritative by Christians, um, and dealt with in the last video the issue of <clears throat> a closed canon, meaning not new authoritative scripture being written, why that position's held, um, and then how different positions are dealing with concept of God still speaking to people, but it not being in the same kind of way, the same sense in that the, the people could then write that stuff down as 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 God's authoritative scripture, but, but more his uh, bringing things to people's minds to uh, build people up or to edify the church or however it might work. Um, and today, philosophy. Uh, why philosophy? Because... Um, think that it's important to try to get a little bit of a, at least semi wrap our minds around the f way the Bible is viewing the world. The Bible's not really consistently like uh, one culture or people group. It's, it's, it is the Jews, but it's the Jews through, through, uh, you know, a couple millennia. So, you know, people change and culture changes. And, and it's, and it's, and that latter part is very much in a Roman Greek world. It's, it's still Jewish culture, subculture in that context. So it did, but, but the Bible has, you know, things that, that it says that I think relate to philosophy or, or, uh, help us to build kind of a philosophical viewpoint on the world that would be biblical with the idea. So that's what I'm doing here in this video. So uh, a biblical philosophical way of looking at the world. Uh, so this is actually from 2000, a paper that I wrote in 2016. So this, these notes are laid out kind of differently than the other notes I was looking at when I was doing these videos. So maybe a little bit more confusing for me. Uh, looking at it. So, philosophy, traditional, uh, like if you took a, you know, I don't know, philosophy 101, you'd get the idea that it's, it's uh, you know, traditionally there's three branches or kind of subdivisions. You have uh, metaphysics, um, axiology, epistemology, and uh, <clears throat> the terms I don't want to get hung up on, but we'll start with metaphysics. And then we'll try to say a few things about how the Bible might view 
has have us think in these terms, these philosophical categories, what the what what the Bible might bring forward for us as as a worldview of uh, how to think uh, about reality. So metaphysics is reality. What's real? Um, not just what is real, but how that came to be. So metaphysics has kind of two sub points. The ontology is what is real, and cosmology is how it came to be. Um, so the Bible is pretty straightforward on on both of those. Uh, we'll start with what is real. So the Bible is different than uh, our, our uh, kind of like a uh, materialistic worldview where there's only matter and there's not a supernatural or not a alternate realm that's interplaying with with the physical just a physical world that's kind of a you know kind of a typical atheistic evolutionary viewpoint the bible's different than that it portrays a total a kind of totally different conception of the world and so let's look at some some verses um why don't we start with colossians 1 colossians 1 16 and 17 Paul talking about Christ. I try to turn to these passages while I do these videos. Um, I'm not the fastest or speediest turner, but if you're watching and you have a Bible, I, I think you should try to turn with me so that you can look at these things. It's important to all, I think that my words are really not worth much, but the the word of God is 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 the is the meat and the food and the, for the mind and the soul and and it it, ch it changes people and it, it it has that effect on people and if you can the more you can engage with it the better if you're just listening to me talk that's one thing but if you're turning to and, and reading if you're looking at it yourself that's more sensory input and it allows you to think better about what I'm saying and see where I might I might be going off the in a wrong direction. We should pray. Lord, you hold the keys to knowledge and truth and and we we need your power uh, to to even to talk and to think and to understand and I just come asking for your help to try to look at scriptures in your word and, and bring forth things that you you have said. And I ask for your your uh, power at, at work on the other end, for anyone who will, who will ever watch this video or listen to it, to um, cause your word to come alive in, in the hearts and minds of people. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is uh, Paul talking about Jesus. And what, what does he say about him? He says, so here we are, uh, Colossians 1, starting in verse 16. Uh, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him 
all things consist. There's a lot of uh, meat in here. Uh, but for the purposes of ontology, as, as a subpoint of metaphysics, what is real, uh, or no, I'm sorry, cosmology, how things came to be, they came, all things, excepting God, uh, seem to have come to be by his creative act, um, through Jesus, by, by Jesus, um, all things were created. That's anything you could imagine. He tries to, I think, the all the phrases here, you know, whether in heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, is trying to be all-encompassing, all things. Um, let's look at another verse kind of speaking to the same lines. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It's a lot less comprehensive one, but uh, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So all things are of God and through God. Of God the Father and through God the Son. For yet, for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Uh, so we're trying to, to look at what's what exactly is real. And um, and how it came to be. So think you can see in those passages a little bit of a setup of kind of two kind of categories you have creator and creation and uh, creation creator is the source or the origin point of bringing creation into being and creation is everything except creator um, Let's look at uh, John, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of John. I think that shows us about how Creator's just there from the biblical standpoint. There's no origin point on the Creator side. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word in, in this in this passage, as you read through it, is Jesus. The Word, in verse 14, becomes flesh and dwells among men. The form of Jesus in the Gospel. The whole book is about Jesus. All things were made through him, that's the Word, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So, I mean, that's another really comprehensive statement. God makes everything. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And prior to, so all things on earth or in heaven, visible and invisible, come into existence through God via Jesus, or by God through Jesus. And God is just there in the beginning. So you have an origin point 
for everything but God and no origin point for God. So that's kind of a cosmology idea. And then what is real, an ontology aspect of trying to talk about metaphysics. You have kind of a, some kind of what, what you could think of as a, a dualism or a, a two-part reality. Um, and the interesting thing about this is it's kind of a little bit different than how I think, I think uh, about reality. I typically think of a physical and a unseen as like, I, like the two categories of reality, the, the uh, visible and the invisible, as, as Paul wrote. I think that's a Greek idea, not so much a Hebrew one, uh, but I don't have sources to cite on that. But I think that uh, the Bible's more bigger on uh, a creator and a creature distinction and doesn't seem as fine line as, as our minds or my mind has between a visible and invisible creation, but the real big distinction between creator and creature. Well, let's just look at one more of these origin kind of verses. Uh, Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 24. Uh, Acts 17, verse 24. For God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Another creation statement. God who made the world and everything in it. Um, so that's uh, the, the creation, the origin, ontology. Where do things come from? They're created by God. Everything is created by God. God not not given an origin point he's there always he's eternal um from the biblical standpoint he's just he's there at the beginning no comment about prior history uh i think it's another kind of important point that uh the the word which is jesus isn't just the the creator it's a sustainer in other words if Jesus were removed, or Jesus removed his sustaining uh, influence, their reality would, would crumble in a sense, cease to exist. Uh, that's kind of the, the idea you get from some of the passages we just looked at. If you flip back to, to Colossians 1, you have that thing, uh, through the Son, Jesus, all things consist, I think that was it's verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. <clears throat> Some translations could say hold together. So they would cease to consist or cease to hold together with the removal of the word Jesus. Um, the verse we read in, in, in Corinthians, Corinthians 8, 6, similar idea. Um, it's not just origin, but uh, upholding or uh, sustaining, I guess would be. The word I'd, I'd like to, I think, is the best descriptor of the sustaining influence. Not just creator, but sustainer. Eight, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Uh, yeah, that's it. For yet there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. So that's origin. 
and we are for him, and one Lord through whom are all things. So some some way, <clears throat> and through whom we live. So in the same way that we're enabled and empowered to live righteously, even though we are sinful, empowered, we're able to do that through Christ. Also, all things are able to be through Christ in some sense. Uh, I think Hebrews, the very beginning of Hebrews, is the best statement of this. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, you have this, through him, uh, the worlds are created, through whom, that's Jesus, the worlds are made, and then also you have Jesus upholding all things, or the, the God upholding all things by the word, of his, which is Jesus. So this sustaining and creating. So um, almost uh, a little bit of a sense in my my flavor I get from it is that uh, almost there's really only one uh, independent reality. That's God. And then there's the creation, which is a reality, but it doesn't really exist independently. It is it was both created by God and is sustained by God. Here's an imperfect analogy. All analogies are imperfect, but here's an analogy. Any human thing that's made needs maintenance. So like a house, if anyone's a homeowner, you know that there's always things breaking. So you as the human can, can make, or if you're a builder, can create in a sense. You're not really creating out of nothing, which is a whole other story of, of what God created out of nothing. You, know, it's, you have just God, and then you have the creation all of a sudden. Uh, but uh, you have, uh, you, you can make a house, that's the that's the um, origin, right? But then you you the house will not stay a house unless you fix the roof and you fix the water leaks and you know repaint the the trim and to to prevent the elements of nature from destroying it. So you have to sustain it. It's kind of a similar idea. There, there's that's, analogies are imperfect. So uh, I want to emphasize that. I believe, at least, the uh, Bible's major distinction is not really, does kind of categorize reality in different categories, but I think the major category that it, it is putting forward is creator and creature, or creation. Like that's the major thought category. I do not think its major thought category that, that it kind of talks about over and over again is physical and spiritual, or visible and invisible. Uh, that is mentioned and, and, and brought up, but <clears throat> almost thinking in a lot of getting back into the Hebrew literature, that distinction might be really fuzzy or not even fuzzy. Let's say it's definitely fuzzy. 
really, I think, more clear in the Greek writing, which is the New Testament part of the Bible. But in both, the, the, the distinction between creator, God, and creation as the two parts of reality is, is pretty strong. And uh, there's lots of passages where this gets hammered home. Uh, the end of the book of Job, uh, 38, 39, 40, 41, really strongly comes across there, I think. Uh, a lot of Isaiah, the, the third part of Isaiah, so 40 and on, all the 40s into the 50s. And uh, let's look at a few verses from Isaiah 40, just to sort of make the point um, that I'm trying to make. Uh, this is a difficult thing because I'm, I'm saying that this is a, what I'm trying to say is I feel as if this is the major, major, where the Bible majors as far as categorizing reality, but can't really, you'd have to really know the Bible well and read through it a lot to uh, make a statement like that. And I don't really know that I know the Bible well enough to make that statement, but from what I do know of it, I'm making that statement. So let's look at it. Isaiah 40, 10 through 18. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead them, or lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom? I'm reading Isaiah 40, right now I'm in verse 13. Who, or I'm in verse 14. With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? I, I think that that's... A message, it's a theme you get a lot in the Bible, the greatness and grandeur of God and the kind of, by comparison, the smallness of the creation. I think that's the major distinctions. That's the, those are the two, if I were to say what's, how does the, what's a biblical ontology, what is real, characterization of reality, it's two part, God, creation, and then of cosmology, God, no origin, always bringing the creation into existence and sustaining it. So both creating and sustaining. So the origin is from God and the continued origin, continued existence is also from God. So that would be kind of like what the Bible might, how the Bible might kind of paint a metaphysic. How it would talk about reality in two parts, ontology, and how it would talk about 
origin cosmology. So if you, like I said at the beginning, traditional philosophy is kind of three, three divisions, metaphysics, which is about reality, axiology, and epistemology. Axiology is about, um, I think value might be the best word for it. And it's kind of has two sets, two branches. Um, and that's aesthetics uh, or beauty. It's what's, uh, the artistic value. And then, uh, all kind of a moral subset ethics. What is, um, good and bad. So <clears throat> we can, uh, Take a look at that. Um, I was just sorry. I, I was just looking over there and seeing if I was gonna stop the recording because and uh, do something with my wife, but she gave me a signal to keep going. So we'll keep going into axiology. <clears throat> I think uh, <clears throat> that this paper is really weak as far as the area of. Uh, Ethics. I don't really think we taught. I, I, I don't even understand what I was doing here. But so as far as value, I start off looking. So basically what the Bible talks about is as a meaning kind of embedded into creation. So let's look at Psalm 19. Uh, one through four. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, I'll read this superscription. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, then unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their word is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In him he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Very similar passage. The point there is that there's um, attached to the to the physical creation, there is some kind of um, value. This is why we're talking about value axiology. There's some kind of um, inherent uh, in creation itself message or communication um, about God. Romans shows this too. Uh, Romans 1. And we are, let's do 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things <clears throat> that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I think the idea here that I, at least what I, what I intended with bringing these verses into a discussion about axiology or value is that um, there's not, a, doesn't seem to be much room here for like a neutral kind of um you know let's just let's just go look at uh 
at what we could inquire empirically through the, you know, nature studying the universe in a kind of neutral sense. It seems like uh, those things that God has created, whatever they might be, his handiwork, his creation, can't be handled neutrally. It's either it's either a communication. It's it is communicating about God. So, like when when a from from the biblical standpoint, I think it's clear from what I read in, in Psalm nineteen and Romans, creation is communicating things about God, His power, His grandeur, His His goodness. I think you could get in in uh, Acts. If you wanted to turn there. I don't know that. Well, let's just do it. Uh, Acts. Acts. Uh, the state. The Saul's or, or Paul or Saul, if it goes by both names, is talking in in Athens, and he says, uh, um, "So." Here's a verse I should have read earlier for for in him, Acts 17, 28, we live and we move and we have our being. That's a key verse for uh, sustaining. No, I would say so. But uh, somewhere in here he talks about... Uh, Well, you know, this is a fascinating passage. Paul's talking about the about God, um, God who made. We read some of this earlier. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Acts seventeen and read verse twenty-five. Does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with man's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in whom, in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, something shaped by the art, by art and man's devising, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. Um, that is not the passage I was thinking of, but that's a good passage. I was thinking of a passage which I think is actually in the Gospels, and I don't know where it is. Uh, and it's not in my notes about God causing, you know, the rain to, to fall on the just and the unjust in, in a sense that through God's provision in nature, you can see his goodness was the idea. What, what creation can communicate. And I might've got, probably shouldn't have gone there, but I did. So back to the point, creation has a communication. And so when you interact with creation, the idea I'm trying to bring forward from a axiology standpoint, a value standpoint, creation, isn't neutral and interacting with it, you're either going to have to uh, suppress the the communication, the, the 
the pointing that it does towards God, or you're going to have to accept it. You can't, you can't just neutrally interact. You have to either actively suppress, which is the point in, in the Romans 1 passage that men have, where I was reading in Romans 1, have suppressed what they see in creation. And they, they're going further and further away from God, and they're, they're actively suppressing. Or you accept it. So that's an interesting idea, I think, that uh, <clears throat> I think oftentimes we're, we're uh, tempted to think in terms of uh, that uh, you could have sort of like a kind of neutral space or neutral facts and neutrally look at the world, but... I don't think certainly the create the the vast majority of creation that uh, when you when you look out at the, what God has made and the beauty there that that beauty which is which is the subject of axiology the, the aesthetic part that's not a neutral thing and, it, and it's either it, it, it's theological in a sense and that's the biblical claim and it's either you're either going to make you worship or make you sub suppress God. You, you have to choose. You have to react. You can't be neutral about it. Um, but what about the other half of uh, you know, axiology? Not, not so much the aesthetic part of you know, creation, but the, uh, the moral part, the ethics, you know, evil. Um, the Bible has a lot to say uh, uh, about this, too. And, and it's, uh, it's kind of a unique standpoint, uh, I think, uh, and that is that... Uh, Evil entered at a point in time, it's called the fall, um, and then it will be eradicated at a point in time. So let's look at uh, some of these, uh, why don't we take, let's go to Romans, Romans 8, where Paul is talking about evil, or the evil force at work in that has entered into creation, the decaying aspect and the moral evil. Oh, where are we here? Romans 8. Uh, let's start uh, in uh, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Uh, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So, there's a lot of meat there, but the, what's going on is, is he's talking about uh, all of creation, the whole of creation, which is, which is the universe, physical stuff, unseen things. There's a groaning, there's a waiting for this this expectation, this, this this looking forward, this hope of a removal of something that happened early on, where 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 the created order was subjected to, what's labeled here as futility, 
Um, but I, I, I'm talking, this is the problem of evil, sin. This is an ethical thing. Sin enters the creation at a point, and it enters through, through rebellion or through, through choice. And, and then it will be eradicated at a point. Um, just look, uh, let's just look at another passage about this kind of expectation. This is, this is different than, uh, than, uh, a lot of worldviews where I'm, I'm flipping to Luke 21, where you have, um, the problem of evil is more of some, something of the nature of, uh, it's there and how do we cope with it? How do we deal with it? Um, but it's kind of just, it always was, always will be. The, the, what you see in these passages that I'm trying to portray about expectation, hoping for something, it's that it's a knowledge or the Bible communicating that we somewhere in us have a knowledge that evil is not okay and, and it's going to change at some point. We're, we're hoping forward for it. So Luke 21, 37, 38. That is not it. Hmm. Where, what is it? Hmm. It's 27, sorry, 27, 28. They, then, they sh will see, this is Jesus speaking about um, the future. They is the human race, people, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. The idea that there's a coming time where redemption is going to happen, restoration is going to happen. Um, I think it's kind of need, need to... Uh, Talk about the, the entrance of evil, huh? I don't, I don't really think we read any. I mean, it's Genesis three is the the one count. In some in some ways, the story's a little incomplete. You have you have a uh, let's just try to set this up. If you look at, at Genesis one, you have creation, the account of, of of the origins, ontology kind of stuff, and you have continually a, a refrain that it is good. It is very good. You even know that there's some of this unseen, that this Genesis 1 and, and 2 talks about creation of uh, the, the seen things. But you get a flavor that of the unseen being part of it because you have uh, references throughout the Bible of, of the creation event. One I'm thinking of in particular is in the book of Job where the unseen beings are there in creation and they're singing during the creation act. That's a verse that I don't have a reference for, but it's in Job, that the sons of God or the angels, it might be translated in some Bibles, um, shouted for joy. Or, I don't know why I'm thinking singing. Singing might be another poetic line in the same passage at the creation of man. Um, so, and there's this continual refrain, and it was good. It was very good. So you know, ethics from an ethic. We're talking about 
axiology here, so ethics, good and bad, that everything's good at one point. Then you, you go through the storyline. This is the very first few pages of the Bible. You get this to this chapter 3 of Genesis, and you have uh, where things become bad. There, there, we have this very clear that there's an entrance of evil. Um, and I don't think that we'll read Genesis 3. It's a good thing to read, but I don't think we'll read it. Um, and, and then, really, the, the whole rest of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is all about getting back to, the, to the, that point where, where it was good before, at the beginning, when all was good, where there wasn't evil, where the creation wasn't subjected to futility. And, and then it's the hope, really, looking forward to when one day all things will be restored. There'll be the redemption of everything, the whole creation, which is groaning, waiting, that it's going to happen. Um, so let's just see here. Uh, we might as well point out the fact that uh, God's mechanism for accomplishing a restoration, for bringing back, uh, for redeeming, is this event in time where he brought himself, God came into the world as a man. That's, a, that's the story of the Bible. That's what G the Gospels are. Jesus' life. Jesus as God and man simultaneously living a human existence, coming to a point where he, he uh, dies a, as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice to uh, atone for the, all of the evil acts or deeds of all of mankind for all of history. That's the central message of the uh, Christian faith. It is the, it's called the salvation message. Let's look at a few passages that just highlight this. And it is really the, the uh, mechanism by which God begins the restoration where evil can be defeated. Um, so let's just look at Romans 5, just real quick. Um, Romans 5. Paul start in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That one man is, that story is told in Genesis 3. That one man is Adam. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace that's sin reigned in death. That's the, uh, that's the effect of, of the entrance of evil, of the fall of man. And then the effect of the redemption of man, the coming of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as death reigned, sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, let's look at another one, Philippians 2. This is 
the whole point. If, if you do not, uh, if you're not participating in this great story personally in your own life, if you have not come to terms with uh, God and his, what he's done through Jesus's death and resurrection to enable you to live, really live by extending you grace, um, then that's my challenge. That's what I want you to take away from this video is come to him. Come to him and open your your uh, your heart and, and accept his help and his power to, to be transformed, to move out of evil and out of sin and out of corruption towards redemption and goodness and, and being made new and renewed in him to which is the end we're moving towards a final redemption of creation but but we can experience eternal life abundant life through him in us now here and now uh, philippians 2 5 through 8 let this mind be in you which also was in christ who being in the form of god did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, he came obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Here's the, here's the thing. He, he's offering an invitation to all of humanity to come and bow and confess that he is Lord right here and right now and to experience his grace, his, his, his giving you a new heart, his changing the, the part of you that is bent on evil, the, the problem, of, the moral problem, the ethical question. He comes in to our lives with radically change us to radically change us and to fix that problem in us to help us to be different but here's the thing we don't have to accept that we can we can go against we can we can reject it but it doesn't matter uh, at some point every every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is lord um <clears throat> and it could be a bowing and a confession in in judgment or to receive judgment or it could be a bowing and confession right now to as a, in a as a joyous thing um, but the choice is ours so the challenge to you is look at look at the the, the goodness of the Bible uh, far as uh, providing a solution to the problem of evil in our hearts today and a future solution so uh, Let's just look at, uh, uh, there's uh, several. Uh, Revelation 21, the end, the end game. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said to me, Right, for these things are faithful and true. That's the, that's the end game of the Bible's perspective on ethics. The, the, all the bad, all the evil will one day be removed and there will be only good. Um, you could get the same thing if you looked at uh, some other passages. Uh, how about we just look at a couple? Isaiah 65. Um, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. A uh, very similar passage out of Isaiah earlier on from chapter 11. Same theme. It's like a return to an idyllic state, the original created state. Uh, six, verse six. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play with the co by the cobra's hole. The wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse you trace that theme through the Bible, is Jesus. So that's the claim of the New Testament, that the root of Jesse is Jesus. Um, so I'll review. We already talked about metaphysics, which is what's real. Talked about the Bible really is just setting up as far as ontology, what is real. Two, two kind of major categories, God, creation, as far as cosmology, from whence. I, may, I think I've been saying this backwards the whole time. But I, I actually don't know which ontology is one and cosmology is the other. One is what's real and one is how it came to be, origin. I think ontology is origin and cosmology is what is real. I've, I've had these flip the whole discussion, but I don't even know. I have to read my notes because I don't, I don't use these terms. And I don't actually find them helpful, but um, they're handles to hang things on. God created everything except himself. He was always there, and he sustains it. Then we talked about axiology, which has to do with value. We talked about the, the aesthetic aspect, which is beauty, and that's in creation. The, the things that he has made, which we, we, we take in, and they are glorious and beautiful, but that they're not neutral, and that they force us. The Bible has a I tried to show that they force us to either worship or to reject uh, God. Um, and then we talked about the ethics half of axiology, which is good and bad, what's good. And we talked about how the Bible started it, God created in a state without evil, where all was good, where evil entered at a, at a point in time. And everything through that, somehow everything was subjected to this futility and everything groaning and longing for a difference and a change. How Jesus entered at a point in time 2,000 years ago to initiate that restoration, that redemption, and how we 
now, right now, you, I, can have that restoration, that redemption, can, can begin to participate in that removal of evil by coming to Jesus, asking him to empower, to, to come into, to confessing his name and, and claiming and asking for his help and, and acknowledging our powerlessness and need of him and of his death in our place on the cross. Um, confessing his name, believing in our heart. Um, and then that's initiation or, or beginning. You know, there's there's part of this restoration happening now and a kind of already begun but not yet accomplished. And then in the end, really, all will be restored. And we looked at those passages. So that's a somewhat of how the Bible would talk about the subject of ethics, how it would talk about the subject of beauty, aesthetics. And then the last branch of traditional philosophy, we got metaphysics, we got axiology. The metaphysics about reality, axiology about value. And the last thing would be epistemology, which is about knowing, um, you know, authority. Uh, and we'll just look at some passages. Start in Proverbs. Look at some psalms. This is ancient Old Testament wisdom literature. What 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 do we have about knowledge or knowing epistemology? Uh, epistemology is how do you know so sources, origins of knowledge. Start at the beginning of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs one, very kind of in the opening part of the book, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what's our, our epistemological method or how do we arrive at knowledge? What's the epistemology? And could it be that the Bible's sinting at fearing God is a way to knowledge? Uh, well, let's look at some more. Uh, Proverbs 2, verse 5 on the next page. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and is from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Flip some more. 9, chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let us look at Psalm uh, 111. This is actually a remarkable reference. Psalm 111, verse 10. So a lot of ones. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. It's just Look at Job, Job 28, 28-28, uh, oh, another easy reference. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So, sources of knowledge. What do I acknowledge as a source for truth? How do I know what I'm, what that something is, is. How do I know what I know? Um, and uh, pointing out that 
I think the Bible would speak to this that uh, we know um, in an emotional way. It might, that might be controversial, but we know in a from fear of the Lord. And I want to point out that fear of the Lord is not that much different than love. Uh, let's look at Few passages to sort of point that out. Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what does he require? He requires that you fear, that you love, that you serve. So there's no incompatibility there in the author's mind and probably not in the audience's mind between fear and love and serving. Look at another one, Psalm 119. 119. Oh. Another convenient little reference, Psalm 119, 119. Um, my computer screen keeps going black and I keep... Uh, Trying to move that thing around to make it come back. You put all the wicked of away. You put away all the wicked like of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. There it is. I love your testimonies. I'm afraid of your judgments. Testimonies and judgments in this psalm are synonymous. It's all about the law, the word of God, the, the Torah. And uh, I love them, I'm afraid of them. Just like fear the Lord, love the Lord in Deuteronomy 10, 12. Um, so you have this fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge or the back end of knowledge. You, you come at knowledge by fearing the Lord. And uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion I, this of course I did not come up with these ideas on my own I, I heard people talking about them and I, and I agreed with them that uh, the Bible is is really equating that we we know what we know uh, ultimately because of we love what we love or we fear what we fear and if it's God that we are fearing and loving then we we come a totally different knowledge we, we, we come to know different things we know what we know differently than if what we fear and love is man or some earthly thing you know respect or um, you know respective uh, peers or whatever it is then uh, what we what we come to affirm intellectually uh, is colored by what we love. Just it just is a claim I believe that the Bible makes, um, and I I would say that this is entirely uh, what consistent with what all New Testament writers write. Let's just go through some New Testament passages. Um, start with uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, three. But know this, 
that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brute, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So he's uh, he's pointing out this, this same thing. You can either love God or fear God, or you can love or fear all these other things. Um, and uh, those who are loving God are coming to know a right, basically, and those who don't are coming to know a wrong, and they're, they're assenting to intellectually the wrong things, and they're affirming the wrong things, and they're supporting the wrong things. If you go down, uh, verse 8, now, uh, Janes and Jambres, as Janes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these, who are lovers of themselves and other things, resist, always resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. So, uh, they've come to know their 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 uh, epistemology is is directly influenced, or or their way of coming to know is is via what they love, and and from loving the wrong things or fearing the wrong things, they actually come to know wrong. They're resisting the truth. Is kind of the idea there, um, which is kind of the point I was trying to make. Um, Second Peter, two. Oh, do 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 do. Should be, I gotta stop? So I'm over the hour mark. I gotta stop. We gotta stop at the hour mark. Is what? What? That's the rule. That's my own little rule for myself. Two. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. So we got this different sets of truth, right? And, and what's the authority behind it? What's the epistemology to the way of arriving at verifying? How do they know what they know? How do the false teachers know that they know what's false? And how do the the non-false teachers know what they know, right? Um, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to receive the judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterwards would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who is oppressed by that filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under, under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh. In the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power might not, might, and might do not bring a reveling accusation against them before the day of the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption. So, uh, this idea of, of they are uh, 
those who walk according to they're, they're they're walking according to the flesh and the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. What what the flesh is loving, or their the the um, human heart is is loving, is leading them because they love those things. They're coming to know what what they think they know are right. They're knowing wrong. So their their source of knowledge, which is somehow is a I don't know what you would call it. Some kind, it's kind of like an emotive epistemology. I don't think this is ever, this is not, would not be considered legitimate. Uh, I don't think um, in philosophy, I've never heard of an emotion as one of the uh, sources of knowledge, you know, one of the epistemological streams. Like if you take an epistemology class, you have things like um, tradition, um, testimony of, of an expert, uh, eyewitness, stuff or um what's observed the observable you know the empiricism what you can empirically observe rationalism you know thinking rationally um uh revelation you know uh what someone self-discloses uh there's several epistemological sources emotions never listed as one but um I do, I do bring these verses forward as things to ponder. There's other New Testament passages you could read. Romans 1, which we read earlier, 1, 24 through 29. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Um, the whole idea is that, that I'm trying to point out is that uh, I think there's something to it that knowledge, the Bible's tying knowing, which is the mess, which is the nature of a the inquiry of epistemology to uh, something in, uh, emotional, the fear or the love of the Lord or the fear or the love of all these earthly things. And with fear and love of the Lord, we, we get knowledge, true knowledge, the truth. And if we fear and love these earthly things, we are opposing, we end up, as, as Timothy was saying, opposing the truth. Um, no, Paul was saying to Timothy, opposing the truth. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, using other epistemological sources, but uh, just saying that this is something to ponder in the realm of epistemology from the Bible. You know, philosophy is a huge area, and I don't want any, anyway you know, think that you know, this is somehow comprehensive, like this, oh, here's philosophy from the Bible. No, um, this is just trying to think in those traditional philosophical categories about things the Bible says uh, that, that relate to them, really. So we, we just review real quick. We looked at metaphysics. Um, what's real? And where did it come from? Uh, its origin, and what is it? What is it? Uh, God. Two categories, really. God and his creation. Origin, God, no origin. Creation, both created by God, from God and then continue to exist upheld by God. Um, then we went from metaphysics to axiology, where you talked about beauty and then ethics. And then the, the beauty, the aesthetic aspect of creation is not the what does the Bible say about it? It says it, it's forcing us into a decision of we either of worship or rejection. It's not neutral. Uh, the ethic discussion we talked about oh, creation which is perfect a fall which brought an evil uh, initiation a 
redemptive plan, which involved God coming down to man, offering an invitation to you to bow to me, to accept his free gift of salvation, his grace, to begin to change yourself from the inside out, to renew you. Um, and then an ultimate fulfillment of that, where the creation, which was subjected to fertility through a fall and perfection, will one day be restored to perfection. And uh, those that are in opposition to God at that point will have to bow the knee if they don't do it before. And it's not a pretty, not a pretty uh, painting that's painted for when evil is, is eradicated, what happens uh, for those who have not come to Christ to start to, to have him renew them. Uh, that's not a pretty painting. So I would implore you and urge you to come to him now. Uh, and then we looked at epistemology, which is the knowledge question. How do we know what you know? Um, and we just looked at some stuff about what the Bible's, the Bible's talking about, uh, how love and uh of what our heart is set on, in a sense, um, heavily affecting coming to know. If we love God, fear God, we come to know a right. And if we love and fear all these earthly things, we come to know are wrong. So some, some thoughts to try to, how the Bible might have us look at uh, our world in philosophical, in the categories of traditional philosophy. Uh, Thanks. Lord, just pray that you would help us to think how you think, to think your thoughts after you, and not to uh, skew them um, by putting them into little categories and dicing them up, which I feel is what I did in this video, and I hope that I'm not skewing. And where I spoke, contrary to your word, let, let your word speak stronger, or where I just shove things into boxes where it just doesn't really fit. Um, hopefully let people see that and comment on it in the comment section so that, you know, di dialogue can go on. We love you, Lord. Amen.